All right, good morning. Hopefully you had a chance to pick up a handout. And um, we're continuing on in this section overall. It, it may all kind of blur together for you, but just as we're walking through the book, there are different sections in it. And um, this is the section, Wisely Extending Forgiveness. So we're talking about some aspects of when we extend forgiveness to others, how we think about that wisely. And... Um, We'll dive in. Part of the reason I'm teaching this week and not Ryan is last week I didn't get through a bunch of what I had to say, and so I should say it this week. So that's what we're doing. Um, so why don't I pray, and then we'll, we'll work through these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to spend some time thinking about you, your forgiveness, what we have in Christ how we've been given the mind of Christ by your Spirit, and you are enabling us to represent him well and wisely toward others. And so we ask for your help this morning. Stretch us in our thinking. Help us to, to see things beyond the simplistic answers that we may gravitate to because it's, it's easy or we feel better or it's what we've always thought. Help us to see the beauty and complexity of how wisely you enable us to relate to each other and how profoundly we've been forgiven and shaped by the work of Jesus. So we ask for your help in all this, in his name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we've been talking about wisely extending forgiveness, and so this is happening in the context of human relationships. We thought some about what it means to be forgiven by God, and we'll, we'll kind of continue on in that as we go throughout this series. But as we interact with people, the context of that that we're all called to as believers is seeking to wisely love them. Uh, regardless of the situation, Scripture calls us to say, what does it mean to love this person and to love them wisely? When there's been wrongdoing, um, the concept of forgiveness enters in. Um, when someone sins against us, and that's not is just a creature toward us in their weakness, but when they sin against us, then we know that the idea of forgiveness enters the equation. Um, but there are a lot of aspects to that that we've been talking about. And I think it's helpful just to be reminded again, Brad Hambrick continues to paint this picture of what unforgiveness looks like in our hearts and what forgiveness looks like in our hearts. Uh, and then as we've talked about, the goal is that we would be able to initiate working toward transactional forgiveness with someone else, but that's not always possible, or that may happen later. The person might not be repentant. The person might not be in our current um, social circle. So there are all kinds of circumstances. But this heart of forgiveness is something to continue to hold uh, before our minds. And so Brad says this, unforgiveness says some combination of, I want bad for you. I would be disappointed if good things happened to you. I want you to suffer in ways that are comparable to how you made me feel. You are a distraction from me enjoying a normal day. The world would feel morally out of order if good things happened to you. If, if we're feeling and thinking those things as they swirl around in our hearts, that doesn't mean that we're not Christians. That doesn't mean all is lost. That just means the Lord wants to help us grow and move toward a heart of forgiveness as we battle against those things. Forgiveness then says some combination of, I want good for you. I want you to come to know God's forgiveness and freedom. I want God to change you into the kind of person who would not do again what you did. And then I want you to flourish. 
I want the freedom to enjoy the good things in my life without comparing them to the good things in your life. Those are characterizing a heart of forgiveness as we see these impulses in Scripture. Um, And so, but with that, you know, we have um, a person sins against us. We're in the context of wise love. Um, Sin comes against us. Ideally, what we want to do is to be able to grant forgiveness, the canceling of the debt of that sin, and then a process of reconciliation, that relationship being restored. But those are two separate things. Um, forgiveness happening. Uh, so first of all, a heart of forgiveness. Then by, by God's will and providence, being able to seek transactional forgiveness when that's possible. And then when transactional forgiveness has come, then there's this process of what does it look like for us to reconcile What does it look like now that this debt has been canceled? And that's what we're talking about more today. One of the tools in this reconciliation process can be putting um, boundaries, is one word for it, boundaries in place. Boundaries are not saying, I will not relate to you. They're saying, these are tools that can help me wisely relate to you and you wisely relate to me based on patterns of what has taken place in the past. Oh, every time we talk late at night, it goes south. Let me invite wise love into this relationship and say, let's set times to talk that aren't that way. Like that's just one example, but it can be all kinds of things. Not saying the relationship is not there, but we are in a process of restoring this relationship. Um, And so those can be one tool. Last week, we talked about forgiveness and manipulative repentance. And I just want to review, or this is all by way of review, and then we'll get to rebuilding trust, which we will talk about today, and it's here. Um, Forgiveness and manipulative repentance. These are things that we need to be aware of as we're trying to evaluate, um, are we to the place now where we can transactionally forgive them? Are they repentant about this sin? Um, And then sometimes we may grant transactional forgiveness and the situation continues to happen. And as we notice that there's a pattern of manipulative repentance, it may lead to forgiveness not being granted about that situation as quickly. Um, So these are things we're constantly just evaluating for of where is the person in this um, condition of repentance, which is necessary for forgiveness. So manipulative repentance. Remember, manipulation, you can think using your hands to like work on clay or something. Like You just have that visible imagery. And then you think of that when it comes to repentance in our words and our relationships. And what manipulative repentance is, is using repentant sounding words and actions. So saying things and doing things, but you're using it to manipulate the situation to serve one's purpose, to serve your own purpose. Um, Brad Hambrick says it's defining words and framing questions, either by your words or how you respond to the person emotionally, but you're framing it up in such a way that a healthy response from the other person seems selfish or mean or unreasonable. It puts it back on them when they actually respond in a healthy way. That's what's going on there uh, with this. Um, Healthy responses like giving input or making a choice or telling the truth or voicing hurt, 
those things all get conveyed as that's unreasonable that you're doing that. That's wrong of you to do that. So there's two key misconceptions we just need to keep in mind when we think about manipulative repentance. The first one is that manipulation is about method, which is another way of saying this. We might think manipulation is all about what words or phrases are said. And so if we just have a list of 10 phrases, then we can detect it. Um, but instead, it's, it's, um, it's about the motive of why these things are being said and what result it produces for that person. And we see that as a pattern over time. Oh, I can say this seemingly innocent thing, but when I do, it puts it back on you and gets the response that I'm looking for, which is either removing me from the discomfort of the situation or actually getting you to serve my interests in the way that I want you to. Let me just pause for a second about that, though. Okay, so manipulation isn't about method, it's about motive. Um, Just in processing this as the week goes on and I get to interact with some of you about these things, one of the things that I think is good to mention is um, we all are responding to other people for a purpose. Like, that's always happening. And sometimes that purpose is for our own benefit. If I genuinely love you well and you receive it well, it benefits both of us, right? That's not necessarily a wrong thing. That can be being godly. And, and so it's not if, if I say words to you that make things go the way I want them to go, it must be I'm manipulating you sinfully. It could be I'm responding well and that makes life better. And so, but it goes deeper into that heart motive. And that's why it can be so tricky to, to root out is, am I doing this not out of what's honoring to God and loving toward you, but am I saying these things mainly because of what it will get me um, and, and the idolatry it's feeding or these different things? So we have to look at our motives that way. The second misconcep- misconception about manipulation is that it requires forethought. I think when we hear manipulation, we can have a characterization of it that the person has come up with an entire plan and in that interaction with you, aha, it's all going according to plan. You're saying this, I'll say that, I get what I want, you walk away sad, boom, I won. Um, Often, this is a gut instinct and there isn't forethought. It's often something that's been shaped by years, if not decades, of responding to situations in this way and it continuing to work. It can be a survival skill. It can be whatever. And so um, the person saying, that's not what I meant to do, doesn't mean manipulation wasn't taking place, right? And that's what can be so tricky for us as we all struggle with being manipulators. (laughs) We all struggle with these tendencies and um, we have to stop and look and say, wait, even though I wasn't calculating that, if I step back and look at my actions and my words and how this played out, what was going on in my heart? Oh, I was doing that. And I can own that and confess it. Okay, and so those are that's just kind of a recap of that. Um, and one last thing I want to say, just as I've been thinking more about it and just interacting with you all, is we all are tempted toward manipulative behavior. This is just something we do as people because of the fall. We weren't created to be this way. Um, And so we're on guard against it. We seek to fight against it. 
the ways we can discern, am I doing it? Is, is this to honor God and love them? And if that's getting blurry, chances are the manipulation meter's going higher and it's more about me. And so, um, but these things pop up and we do that and we confess it, like I said, and it doesn't mean we're in this huge pattern of that or um, we're showing manipulative unrepentance. But do you see how dangerous it is? Because it's really subtle it's really deceptive, and it gets reinforced over time because it kind of works, right? You get life to go how you want it to go as you manipulate it until something comes that's too big for you to be able to control. And then when that happens, are you going to repent and see what you've done, or are you going to blame the other person and just charge ahead? And that's kind of how this tends to go, okay? So just because you feel it in your heart and are convicted as you hear those things, like I am as I talk about it, um, doesn't mean we're in the throes of that, but we should all be on guard and battling it. Okay? And so last week we talked about seven statements of manip- that can be manipulative repentance. And again, it's discerning a pattern. And uh, you can refer back to last week to see those things and discerning that pattern. Okay, and so why it's important to determine if manipulative repentance is happening is... Ideally, when we're giving transactional forgiveness, the person isn't being manipulative, but they are using words uh, that are in the first person about what they've done. I sinned against you when I yelled at you, when I hid my location and went somewhere, when I, you know, you could, we can fill in the blank of these things. And the harm that that did to you, and this is where it shifts to the you part, is I see how that destroyed your trust. I see how worried that made you feel. I see how betrayed you felt by what I did. Um, And so it's owning your sin and understanding the hurt that it caused to them. That's ideally what's happening. And then we can, by God's grace, grant forgiveness to the person when they're uh, repentant in that way. The manipulative repentance helps us see, is this part of a bigger pattern and do we need to pick a different course. Now, let's say that by God's grace, he has granted repentance and he's granted you the grace to say, I forgive you. Now, where do we go? And that's where forgiveness and trust really comes in. And sometimes as Christians, we feel an extra layer of guilt when trust isn't immediately restored because sometimes we think that means we're not being forgiving. Um, and it, it may come out in things like this. I, I really feel bad for not trusting so-and-so after they did something, lied to me or, or said that, uh, yelled at me. Um, and the guilt there is often because we're thinking that just because God is involved in this, it should be immediate then. And instead of realizing God is involved in this, but it's an actual wise process that we need to walk out. And so related to that, we talked about last week that trust is a proportional virtue. And then let me just check, just because I'm just talking a lot up here. We are now on the inside of your handout. We're talking about trust. So just in case you didn't hear me uh, turn the page on that mentally, because I didn't, I just kept talking. (laughs) That's where we are. So we're talking about the um, trust and forgiveness here. And so a key thing to understand is that trust is a proportional virtue. What's an absolute virtue? An absolute virtue is something that we are to do it all the time, regardless of the situation. The question is just, how do we do it? And honesty can be one of those things. It's not 
wise to be 50% honest. I told you half lie and half truth. Good for me. Like that would be classified as deception. Like that's, it's, it's an all or nothing game. There can be wisdom in how we deliver the truth. Um, Kevin came up and talked to me afterwards about this and he, he asked, it, would we say then that love is an absolute virtue? And I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Loving is something we are always to do. I, I can't think of a time we're not called to love. Um, but how do we do it, right? I mean, that looks very different. That's what this whole thing is about, is wisely love. But the question isn't, should I love this person or not? Um, God shows love to all people in various ways. That's why there's a whole book by D.A. Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Like, how is that love shown? But we can see it as an absolute virtue. Trust is not an absolute virtue in that we are not always to trust somebody. It is actually unwise to trust a non-trustworthy person. And it is wise to trust someone who is trustworthy. And there's a whole spectrum that, that happens there. And so we used that example last week, right? Of um, Imagine we could walk around with trust meters on our head. I, are there commercials about credit scores? Is that what's coming to my mind where you have this number that floats about you? Is that what it is? Or your Yelp review or something? Um, well, it'd be interesting if we all had a trust number that just kind of floats above. Oh, a 30 percenter. Yeah, I think I'm going to hold back a few details <laughs> that, um, that may be really damaging to me if they're told to the whole world. Or I may be really hurt by you betraying my trust in this way. Oh, an 80, 90 percenter? I'm able to open more of myself to you, and it's wise to do so. Um, And so what's important to understand is a lot of times as Christians, we only focus when we talk about forgiveness on the problem of under-trusting. Oh, that person's sorry. You should just trust them again. Um, yes, they swindled away all your money. You should just hand them cash, right? Like it would be unforgiving of you not to do that. Do you see how that gets framed up? And that's a problem because they're two separate things. I forgive you, but we are in a process here of understanding your need to rebuild trust and my need to discern where you are in this trust scale so I can wisely love you. Uh, so that's that's what's happening there. So a lot of times we um, think that the under-trusting is the only problematic thing, but it's actually problematic biblically to over-trust an untrustworthy person. It short-circuits the work God is seeking to do in their life, and it leads to harm. It can lead to harm for you by what they say or by what they do. It can lead harm to your family, to other victims. It can be all kinds of reasons that we have to have the person rebuild trust Um, before it's given to them. Jesus was truly wise in how he related to everyone. And so last week we talked about an example of, um, well, we used an example and you can listen to that last week, but we're picking up with the elements of wise trust. Here's a good way to interact with people as we're rebuilding this. And this is a relational thing. Sometimes it can be a big conversation where the person is saying, why don't you trust me enough? And it's, here, let me address it. Sometimes it's just this give and take dance of talking to each other. But here are some things to keep in mind. What we're looking for as we're seeking to wisely love them are good and wise choices that the person is making. 
And we seek to affirm those things as we're able, if those things are validated as, as good and wise things. It's, it's really great. The example we used last week was um, a son who was an addict um, basically to alcohol, and you'd extended forgiveness, but now the son wants more money, and so we were talking through some of those things. Okay, here are the good steps that you've been taken, that you've been taking, and I see those things. And then you can articulate your corresponding actions of trust. That's why um, it's great to talk to you weekly or um, that's why I still send you a birthday card, or you know, whatever it might be. There's, there's some level of corresponding. I am relating to you because you are demonstrating trust in this way. But there's also identifying the problematic behaviors or choices that may continue to be happening. Um, when details continue not to match up, when money is missing, when location is off, when truth is held back, um, those kinds of things we're able to lovingly bring up and say, because of those things, though, I, it would not be wise of me to grant you more trust and to move this along. Does that make sense? So that's part of um, the process that's taking place there, those elements. So now let's talk about the spectrum, a spectrum of wise trust. And the reason it's a spectrum of wise trust is this is just trying to put words and handles on the complexities of relational dynamics, right? Um, and they often don't break into 10 clear steps. <laughs> um, and as we look at this spectrum of wise trust, first of all, I think it's good to realize this. We think of what trust looks like at its most broken point when we talk about this. Now, Lord willing, a lot of the interactions that we're extending forgiveness for Lord willing, will not take trust all the way back down to the one stage. Um, there can be, especially as relationships are healthy and as trust is being rebuilt, and yes, there's something hurtful said or done, confession, forgiveness, and yeah, maybe we bumped the trust meter down a bit. Sometimes it almost didn't even do that, right? Depending on the relationship. There are all kinds of sins and all kinds of patterns and all kinds of things that can happen, though, that take the trust meter down to zero. Um, and as Christians, we can wisely acknowledge that that's what's taken place. God doesn't act like this stuff doesn't happen. Um, he wants us to see and be honest about what's happened and then rightly consider where are we in this in terms of wisely relating. So um, this is taking it to its worst and saying, what does trust look like and where, how it rebuilds, okay? So at its like lowest is third-party mediation. So because of previous interactions, you don't feel safe to be with the other person. Those can be physical inter- interactions and physical unsafety. That can be verbal or emotional dynamics that make interacting with that person in a one-on-one setting, continually harmful. Remember what Proverbs 12:18 says. Rash words are like thrusts of a sword. We take what a person does with their words very seriously. Um, and so, third-party mediation. Um, you need someone else there. How is trust rebuilt if someone else is there? Well, here's part of how that works. Trust is built by the offender being open and honest about their sin in front of that other person, and probably more so to that other person. Like in this situation, we're thinking, you're there, like you're present, but the, the offender is interacting primarily with the third party, and if the repentant is understanding, I've so destroyed this with you, 
that I will interact with them so you can see where my heart is and I can rebuild trust. Like that's where this is. Um, So trust is built by the offenders, open and honest. Trust is built as they receive correction from the mediator and you see them respond to that correction because you're watching and you're saying, hey, I've tried to correct you before. This is this whole pattern of things you were uncorrectable about. How are you responding as this person person shows you God's wisdom in your life? So that's, that's kind of like step one. As that continues and builds trust, and again, I could just give thousands of caveats, so I just want to lay out the process here so you can, again, these things are like lay out the info and then talk one-on-one with a wise person, a pastor, or a woman you trust um, about where you might be on this scale. But step number two then is a listening and validating phase. So we've worked through mediation enough, you're okay with being one-on-one with this person in some way, whether that's a phone call or like text or ideally in person, we get to that point at some point. Um, You're willing to talk one-on-one, but you are still wisely skeptical of what they say because it's been a pattern of breaking trust. It would be foolish of you with a person who's a 10% truster or a 0% in your case to then be like, here's 90 Okay, so there's this posture of skepticism. Um, But, and then you're listening to what they say. And then this is the time for the offender not to be discussing future promises, not to be discussing interpretations of events, because those things are often weaponized. This isn't where you're yet expressing feelings. Those things can't be backed up by facts, And they've been used deceptively in the past. And so trust is built as a pattern of validated facts emerge. And you talk to that person, and they're telling you what they've done, and you find out what they did. I went to the store the other day. Wow, that that actually you could validate and was true. You're just seeing, is truth-telling happening at all? And it's in this kind of factual stage. Well, then... As that progresses and you see, wow, they're not lying about all these little things um, that I could prove, then step three, listen and require less validation. As statements continue to be proven accurate, trust can increase. Statements that are incomplete or slanted too positively are still assumed to be intentional deceit and creates a trust regression, right? So if all of a sudden the person is... um, slanting things too positively or leaving out details, it's, mm, wait a minute, this is a warning sign for forwarding more trust. Because a trustworthy person is not going to intentionally leave things out, and a trustworthy person is going to represent things accurately, not, hey, okay? Um, And so giving benefit of the doubt may start to come in this process as it continues. Then, step four, relying on the other person functionally. You begin to do life together again in ways you did before. But notice what these things are. They're, they're doing life together. I, I would just make a distinction. You're moving toward like facts and doing life together. What's further down the trust spectrum is things about opening up your heart <laughs> because uh, that's where a lot of the danger lies. It gives them fodder to foolishly hurt you and it opens you up to uh, harm. And so 
relying on them functionally, doing things like you did before, like scheduling, managing projects, going to social events. The tone is still more functional than mutually enjoyable and free. You know, this isn't like you're going out with your best bud whom you feel totally safe with, but you're saying you've, you've earned trust enough, we can functionally do these things. And so trust in this phase is built as this is done, these things happen without deceit and as your concerns are being heard and responded to well by the other person, right? And so they're not lying about, hey, we're going out to see some friends tonight and they're not like leaving out the names of five people and those people are ones you've never connected with and it'd be really good to know, <laughs> right? Like the, the information you need to know to build trust is presented to you. And, oh man, I'd, I'd love to go out with you tonight, but I'm a little bit concerned about it being a late night or something. And so, oh, that's okay. I'll make sure we leave by nine. Or, what time would you like to be home? Okay, I'll make sure we leave by so-and-so. See how that's all building trust? But if it's like details left out and, boy, I'd really like to be home. You always want to be home. Why do you limit me? Whoa, we are dialing back trust, right? Because you're showing that you can't lovingly, you instead foolishly engage with my desires and concerns. <clears throat> then we come into step five. And again, these things are fluid, but um, sharing facts. As you're now functionally doing things together, this is really where we start to mark. And notice we're, we're like halfway through this 10-step thing. This is where you the beginning of what I would say giving yourself again. You allow yourself to be known at a factual level. You're now giving more information of, I did this or I did that, and you're letting the person more into the narrative of your life. Questions, this is, this is important to understand, I think especially for the offender regaining trust. Questions that start with why or how come, even if they're not said why, it's said like why or how come, those questions, <laughs> they still make you uncomfortable because you're not yet at the point where it's been proven that it's safe to say why you think those things or how come you did that. Um, so that's good as an offender to just realize these like motivation-y questions may be saying, whoops, I'm demanding more than where this relationship is. Questions that start with, would you? Would you like to go out tonight? Would you want to stay out late or come home early? Would fishing be a cool thing to do at this stage? Um, questions that start with would you are more welcome as they pertain more to the facts and schedule of your life. So you're opening yourself up, but it's more still in this factual scheduled way. That, then, as that's happening, step six is sharing beliefs. Sharing facts leads to sharing what you think about those facts. That's a much scarier place to be, right? Post what you think about a situation on social media and you'll see how scary of a thing that is, right? How dare you think that? We can be so condemned just for our thoughts about something. And so we're seeing, we're, we're, we're getting to opening ourselves up in that. Things like what you like, what you dislike, what you agree with, what you disagree with, and what you want from life are now more welcome. You can talk about the way things should be without being met by a tone of judgment or sadness or guilt overpowering the conversation. 
And then you can share your beliefs. And as you share your beliefs and are more understood, and the person's like, oh, I see why you think that. Maybe they don't agree, but I see why you think that. And you're not destroyed for it. That builds trust. And then you can learn in this relationship or relearn in this relationship how you relate together with different opinions and preferences. That's part of a healthy relationship. As we get to the point, we can love each other in the midst of our differences. As I'm saying these things, I know we're starting from like zero and going to 10, and it's kind of laying it out as one of the most intense situations. Hopefully that's helpful and serves its own purpose. You can also see how with a a wise and trusted friend, these things happen naturally and organically. But we understand that in a fallen world, we need to wisely navigate this process to rebuild it with this goal of intimacy being something we're shooting for. But in a fallen world, it it doesn't always happen. We don't get to a 10 with everyone in our lives. First of all, we just don't have the capacity for it. But then secondly, in the dance of trust, giving, and receiving, um, not all relationships are at this level. But we're, we're, we're seeking to do that, right? So sharing beliefs. Then number seven, sharing feelings. Why is this way down here at number seven? And it's because previously emotions were something that were thrust at or shown in your face more than shared. Feelings are to be shared and understood as a way of coming to know a person and how things make them feel. Um, And they can instead be weaponized or... um, used in extreme ways. And so what happens is burdens are being reduced and joys begin multiplying. That's what happens when we share ourselves, when we share our feelings about life with someone who responds lovingly. It lifts a burden. (laughs) Uh, And that we're able to bear one another's burdens in the spirit. It's an amazing thing. Friendship then is beginning to feel like a blessing again. Up until then, friendship may feel like a very scheduled gear yourself up for, I'm a little on edge as I seek to do this thing. But the further we get down, the less it feels that way and the more it feels safe, um, freeing, and loving. Uh, number eight, rely on your friend emotionally. Because you're able to believe your friend is being transparent and sincere when they share with you, um, you can share with them. And it becomes an exception to the rule when suspicions arise about their motives and what they're saying or doing. It, that, that's an atypical thing because there's transparency and trust that's been built over time. Most interactions then with the person become an emotional net win you feel better because of interacting with that person. That's how friendship and relationships can become a blessing uh, as we're both seeking to do this for each other. And then number nine, you allow your friend to care for you. Allowing your friend to be kind or express appreciation has lost any sense of being unsafe, unwanted, and manipulative. Now, if you're not thinking about manipulative, difficult situations, you may hear that and be like, what? A person being kind to you? How is that bad? The dynamics of manipulation are not that a person's just mean to you from sunup to sundown. That doesn't get them anywhere. How do you get somewhere with someone? You're nice to them when you want to be nice to them, when it gets you what you need. And so there has been a lot of niceness, typically, 
but that niceness was toward a purpose. And over time, as in these factual and um, all these other ways trust is gained, then niceness can now not feel scary of, oh, when's the shoe going to drop? It can change that over time, which is an amazing, amazing thing, how God can heal relationships as someone humbly embraces this path of trust. Um, And in this stage, stage nine, your friend's efforts to bless you can be received as blessings rather than being treated as riddles to be solved. And that's what it feels like. You're being nice to me. What do you want? And it's not because I'm a suspicious person in a sinful way. It's because I'm a wise person because I've realized over time, niceness precedes demand slash punishment. Number 10 then, relax and feel safe with your friend. This is trust restored. This is the beauty of what God blesses us with at times in our lives, in some people, sometimes in many people, who knows. But trust is restored. And listen to what this is. Your friend's presence is a source of security rather than a pull toward insecurity. Your friend's presence helps reduce stress rather than add stress to your life. Because that's what a, a loving friend is seeking to do, right? to be there for you and to help you and to bear your burdens. Uh, You are drawn to your friend when something is difficult, upsetting, or confusing, and their presence in your life is a form of relief and comfort. Where do you go with that, right? I think for some of you, this may be a really hard moment of realizing how some of the closest relationships in your life are so far from what they're supposed to be. And that's a really hard thing. Um, I think another thing it kind of shows us is the preciousness of a true friend when we've found someone who loves us that we can trust. I think it also shows us the weight of being a friend. This, this is what we're seeking to do and be for someone else because this is how God is toward us, right? That's what's amazing uh, in it. Um, as we think about trust, let's think just for a moment about God's trustworthiness. I think, I think in our handout, I would be, so this is exactly in between number 10 and embracing the process These are some comments I wanted to make before we talk further, but let's think for a moment just about God's trustworthiness, though, as we think about this. God is perfectly trustworthy. He is always honest, truthful, reliable. Psalm 111, 7 and 8, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Whoa, just trustworthiness on every level being held out there in this beautiful poetry. And so God is perfectly trustworthy. And yet think about this. How much do we have trouble trusting him? I have a lot of trouble trusting him. And it's not because he's not trustworthy. It's this experience in a fallen world. It's things in my heart that make me recoil against such perfect love and trust, 
when's the shoe going to drop with God if that's how it works down here? I mean, there can be all kinds of reasons, but we often have trouble trusting him. And yet scripture constantly exhorts us to trust in him. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, O people. And look at what trust looks like. O pour out your heart before him. You can trust him enough to pour out your heart and he's not going to hurt it. He's going to do what's right and good and loving by it. For God is a refuge for us. So that's how God is with us. And we struggle so much to trust him. And yet what's his response toward us? He's so patient with us. He's so patient with us, inviting us again and again and proving himself to us again and again. How many times have you seen God in the course of your life just patiently remain there and bless you as an opportunity to continue to show you, you can trust me. It's not just in the cross, it's for all time. You can trust me. And he's doing this again and again so we can take these next steps of trust, turning to him in salvation, but also continuing to trust him in our sanctification. And so I want us to think about God's trustworthiness and and what that's like for us to relate to him because it gives us compassion then to, to understand this process when this then is trying to happen between two sinful people. <laughs> and you see what a dance this is going to be. You see how imperfect it is. And so what we're called to then is to wisely see the process and to say, I'll enter into that process as a way of love. Um, There are no timetables for the one to ten steps. There's no pacing guide, and relationships don't always arrive at stage ten. And so our goal is to wisely gain an understanding of where we are in the relationship, and then you're just asking, what's the next step? What would it look like to gain trust here? You're not saying, how do I get to 10? (laughs) You're just saying, here's where we are because of what I've done or what they've done. How would we grow in trust? I'll either seek to do that for them or I'll seek to be watching for that uh, in them. Um, And then you gauge when your friend's actions warrant you to begin taking the next step in wise trust. I just want to talk about this dynamic for a moment. Um, Sometimes when we hear this, if we're the offender, so we're the person who did the harming, especially if it doesn't feel like a big deal to us, which unfortunately that happens a lot as fallen people, right? Um, We can um, chafe against this rebuilding of trust. We can feel offended. (laughs) I didn't even do anything. Or what I did doesn't deserve us being down here at a two. Like, I really have to relate to you this way. I mean, we were up here. Uh, and we may chafe against that whole process. But what this is calling us to is really what we're being called to in, in the whole way we think about wisely loving people, whether they've sinned against us or not. And here's an example that comes to my mind. Um, I function in the role of a pastor, right? That's one of the things I do here. And when people find that out, it's interesting to see what that automatically does to their trust meter of me. So I can encounter someone that I have never spoken to before, and they 
learn that I'm a pastor. For some, there's a 10, if we're one to 10, there's a nine or a 10 above my head just because I'm a pastor and I have a beard um, and some gray hair in it. Oh man, gray hair, 11. Um, He must be so wise. Um, And so it's like a 10. Why? They've had good experiences with pastors before. Um, That's that's been their experience, basically. Their beliefs have matched their experience of that, and it has gone well for them. Other people find out I'm a pastor, and it's a one or a negative five. And I have never done anything to this person, but someone else has, right? There are reasons why their trust gauge of me is where it is. And so what am I to do as a Christian who's called to wisely love this person who's seeing this floating above my head or judging my heart? But that's a different thing. Um, What we're called to enter into is not to chafe against it and be like, how dare you? I'm really an eight. Don't call me a two. I haven't even done anything to you or something like that. No, it's it's reading the other person and coming to know them, draw the, drawing them out and interpreting how they're responding to you so you're gauging up what their level of trust is. And then I'm not trying to surpass that level of trust. I'm trying to meet them there and show them they can trust me. Oh, you're... <laughs> I'm a two, the last thing you're going to want to do is open up about your feelings. So I'm not going to be like, why aren't you opening up about your feelings? I'm going to talk to them about things they can validate and know. I'm not going to press in. I'm going to give that time. In the old peacemaking material by Ken Sandy, they would call this building passport. And it's like you're gaining passport to be able to enter into the person's life. I think the, the downside of how I can hear that sometimes is it's, it's gaining passport to then there's a stamp on it and now I can just blast you with the truth. <laughs> uh, cool, I, I did the like trustworthy thing. I held back for a while, but bam! <laughs> Ken Sandy didn't say we're supposed to do that. That's just where my own sinful heart goes in it. But if we think about this trust meter thing, oh, God is calling me to wisely engage with you, to love you in such a way that I start moving us along that scale. Why? Because I want to be seen as a 10? No, because I want to see how God wants to use me to be a blessing in your life, to lift your burdens, to show you his love and care. And I don't impose that upon you. I show that to you where we are now by wisely loving you in a way that rebuilds trust. If that's how we're called to interact with everyone, then how much more so should that be the posture of a repentant heart when we've hurt somebody, right? When we've actually done the thing, when I'm the pastor who said those words or who, you know, we could go down whatever trail. When there's culpability on my part, all the more so, am I not trying to push or hold that against you, but to humbly serve in a trust-building way to rebuild um, trust um, in a way that it's been damaged? And then... And then the person who has been offended, when someone is seeking to do that, we are wisely gauging, is this, is this moving forward in an area I could give more trust? Is this holding steady? Is this regressing? Um, sometimes we often, if we're in the throes of this and it's been manipulative, we need another friend helping us discern this. Hey, this happened. This is how it hits me. Is this at all true with someone who understands how this stuff works? Um, yeah, we're not ready to move forward and trust, or yeah, I, I think this is, and we'll, we'll trust the Lord with that next step. Um, that's kind of how that works. 
Okay, once again, I have more things on my handout to keep covering. Um, these, these other two I intentionally have as just kind of short things I want to throw out there to then kind of round this out. So are you able to hang with me for just kind of two thoughts to just marinate on? Crisis and post-crisis forgiveness. Um, you know, it's been said that forgiveness is an event and a process. When transactional forgiveness happens, we say, I forgive you. Then there's this process of ongoing forgiveness, learning how to relate to them on the other side of that having been granted. Brad has this way of thinking about it that I think is helpful. It's called crisis and post-crisis forgiveness. The transaction of forgiveness of I canceled this debt is kind of, it's the climax of the story in many ways. It builds to this point, the crisis of forgiveness being granted. But then there's this whole process over here that we often don't think about. You know how movies usually like, will you marry me? And then there's a kiss and then it just stops and you never see, how does the rest of life go? Um, We can have rom-com ideas of forgiveness, I guess, is kind of how that can happen. Oh, oh, cool. Then the angels just sing because I said, I forgive you. And now, oh, we just float through life. No, there's this whole post-crisis process of forgiveness. Brad gives these examples of situations where one may forgive, where it's still, there's going to be this post-crisis process, right? A spouse has been unfaithful with your best friend. A spouse has hidden a major amount of debt that they incurred, and it's jeopardizing all kinds of financial life dreams. A teenager borrows the car without asking and then wrecks the car. Your friend shares a damaging secret, and there's all kinds of fallout. If we imagine these situations unfolding, we begin with the crisis phase here, right? The moment of discovery, the process of learning how bad it really was, what did happen, what didn't happen, the pre-forgiveness conversations where we're expressing our hurt over what has taken place and seeing if they're repentant. And then it's finally getting to the place of, I forgive you, if by God's grace we can get there, right? Um, this is all really hard. That's a hard process to walk. Um, But post-crisis forgiveness is often equally hard, and that's good to know. The crisis phase of forgiveness is characterized usually by its intensity of everything as it's coming to you. The post-crisis phase is often characterized by the weariness of endurance, of like, okay, we walk this out now, right? Hear Brad's description of it. After declaring, I forgive you, we battle with fear, anger, mistrust, shame, and intrusive thoughts. Forgiving was so daunting, we thought that finally doing it would make life easier. But then we realize after initial time of relief, post-crisis forgiveness is only a different kind of heavy. Crisis forgiveness was in many ways easier. It was heroic. It was focused. It forced us to our knees in reliance upon God's strength. But now post-crisis forgiveness comes when we are grace-weary. It is mundane. It must cover a multitude of comparably smaller sins, not just one big sin. And it can easily be distracted by so many things we're trying to catch up on, all those things that were neglected during that crisis phase, right? He says, during post-crisis forgiveness, when we offend, so we're the one who did the forgiving, right? But what happens? Are we perfect? No. 
we offend, even if in lesser ways, the person that we forgave, and now we're the ones to repent. And you may be saying, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. And then there's everyday irritants that happen that call for patience and grace. But we feel like we've been gracious and patient long enough. I mean, we did this whole thing, right? And then our spouse or our child or our friend offends us again, perhaps forgetting to follow through on a commitment. And we're called to relate to them independent of the original offense, to not have all the baggage of that come even though we do have to assess where we are now as a result of that offense again. And so it's helpful to understand that this part is hard. And the reason it's helpful to understand is this. A lot of times, again, because we we can have a rom-com view of forgiveness, romantic comedy if you're not as up on all the hip language, um, A rom-com view of forgiveness that I said it and now everything goes fine. What happens is when it's hard, we're like, oh no, I didn't do forgiveness right. Or what's wrong in my heart? I guess I'm not forgiving. And what God wants us to see is, no, you're in the process of post-crisis forgiveness. It's now the process of walking out the way you said, I will covenantally relate to you differently now with that debt canceled. But it still has all the complexities of a normal human relationship um, going on. And so the forgiver may often assume that the process will go directly from forgiveness to peace. <laughs> Just a whoop, that was great. The, for, the offender often assumes they will move directly from forgiven to trusted. Neither of those things is true. There's a process that happens there. The last thing is remembering well after forgiveness. We um, may think, if we think forgiveness is forgive and forget, which isn't what God even does, so we've dealt with that. Um, What do we do with our memories after we forgive? Some of us may wish it was like Morpheus in the Matrix. He offers you a blue pill and you can forget it all, right? Maybe that's how it's been portrayed, is that that's what happens As creatures, that's not how our memories work, and that's not what God calls us to. And so there's so much to be said about our memories of the event after it happens, especially when it's been very significant or traumatic. Um, That requires a whole conversation outside the realm of this class, but know that that's legit. That's not unchristian if memories of a difficult thing still haunt you, and there are ways... um, More than just saying you need to believe and trust more, there are ways to walk through dealing with the embodied experience of memories of hard things happening to us. So know that if that's where you are. Regardless of where we are, a helpful principle is this. Remembering well means coming to remember accurately. Um, See, we may think it's all don't remember it at all. That's not how it works. But it can be a process of growth that says, I remember this how it truly was. Um, And what that means, Brad says, is we can create a list of things that were said and done, and we can make a corresponding list of how we felt in response. 
You see, as Christians, a lot of times we kind of say, oh, that feeling stuff, that doesn't matter. And that's exactly not the case. But what what this process helps us do is as this whole thing comes to us and wells up within us from what has happened to us in our minds and in our embodied experience, we can grow in time to say, here's what happened and here's what it did to me. Here's how I felt about it. And as we're able to untangle those things, we're able to then better and better interact with that situation, the person, what God was at work doing in it. We will never be able to separate the emotions from the experience. That's an artificial yet still important distinction. But emotions are part of our experience. And we can strive to understand, Brad says, which parts of our memory were modified, exaggerated, muted, deemed irrelevant, or made central because of our emotions during an experience. Forgiveness doesn't revise history. The Bible records the horrific things people did, even though God forgave them. The truth doesn't just disappear. It doesn't call us to just pretend the bad thing never happened. What forgiveness is calling us toward as we're able in the process, and it doesn't always go this way, but to be able to respond to the person having canceled that debt in a wise way. That's, that's a goal, but you can see how complex this is. And so remembering well, one step of that is remembering accurately. Um, Brad talks more about some of the other steps, but I think that's just one to understand. Um, and so if you ever want to talk further about that, we can. But those are some things to keep in mind as we are granting this forgiveness, the process of rebuilding trust. And then as we're realizing, hey, there's this ebb and flow in this part of it, this post-crisis part, it's pretty hard. And one of the hard things about this post-crisis part is we have memories of what took place. And we want to deal wisely and well, graciously and hopefully with those memories, understanding they don't just disappear. um, But God is with us in those, helping us deal with those. Um, Again, a caveat, it's complicated and there's lots of help and you can talk through that. It doesn't just mean you don't have faith because these things are intense. Um, So why don't I pray? Our Father in heaven, we're going to talk in a few moments about the amazing forgiveness we have through the blood of Jesus Christ and how that has changed everything about how you relate to us. And it's truly hard for us to even comprehend, especially when we just think on a human level how all this stuff works out. I pray that you would help us all to better understand your love for us, what you're doing in us, and how Jesus would have us wisely walk with one another in the midst of the hurts that we do to people and the things that are done to us. We desperately need your grace, but we do know that you can restore the years that the locusts have eaten You can take the things that were hardest and darkest and we can look back on them and we can see your love and your grace and the gospel work breaking through. And we know that one day all the light will overwhelm the darkness and the tears will be wiped away forever and we'll see your goodness and we will know the perfect love of your love for us and our perfect love for one another. How we long for that day but give us grace until it we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.